podcast where we try to bring the real world to economics and some economics to the real world. Along the way, you'll discover that this podcast is about more than economics and it's more than a minute. I'm Eric Fruits. I'm an economist based in Portland, Oregon. My day job is in economic consulting where I serve as an expert witness in litigation. I'm also an adjunct professor who will be teaching a course in urban economics in just a few days. Please visit the Econ Minute blog at econminute.com. That's econminute, all one word, dot com. It has almost daily updates. If you're looking for economic analysis, an expert witness, or a speaker at your next event, you can contact me through the blog or just email info at econminute.com. That's info at econminute.com. This week's podcast looks at Hillary Clinton, economic growth, big bird, and trolls. This is the Econ Minute podcast. Welcome. If you're a regular reader of the Wall Street Journal, you'll come across William Galston's weekly column in the opinion section. Mr. Galston is kind of the token liberal slash progressive columnist for the journal. He's wrong more often than he's right, but at least he tries. Mr. Galston's recent column headlined, Hillary Got It Right About Growth, does two things. First, it chides Republican presidential candidate Jeb Bush for his goal to achieve an economic growth rate of about 4% a year. Galston hints at a new normal where 4% annual growth can no longer be achieved and it's just a pipe dream. Then, Galston turns around and hints that it could be achieved. But if only policymakers engage what he calls an all-out effort to expand the labor force. Galston, however, and a lot of other liberals and progressives get it exactly backwards. Any effort to expand the labor force will do nothing if there's no demand for that additional labor. For example, what Mr. Galston describes as family-friendly policies, such as in places like Europe and, and other more progressive states of the United States, things like expanded sick leave programs, sure, those may actually attract more people to the labor force. They may come in to the labor force looking for jobs. But at the same time, these policies raise the cost of hiring and retaining employees, thus reducing the demand for workers. In other words, these people may be applying for jobs that no longer exist. The result is what is known as a surplus, a surplus of job seekers and a shortage of jobs. We know this more informally as unemployment. Now, economic growth will boost the demand for workers, and an improving economy will draw more people into the labor force. Hillary Clinton's speech got it wrong instead by focusing on redistributing income rather than growing the economy. In her speech, she talked about diverting resources to clean power. But creating a clean power job does nothing if it comes at the expense of one or more jobs elsewhere in the economy. Hillary Clinton's speech talked about raising the minimum wage. But if raising the minimum wage for one group means that others lose their jobs, then raising the minimum wage may hurt employment. Looking forward, the causation is clear and the prescription is simple. If you grow the economy, the jobs will follow. Now let's take a wonky look at labor force participation. And we're going to talk about a good friend of mine named Fred. Actually, Fred's not a person. Fred's a service. It's a data service from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Fred is the go-to place for a bunch of economic data. It's a service of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, and the site is easy to use and has a huge amount of data. Fred also runs a blog that uses its own data to answer, or at least address, some of the big data-driven questions of the day. Fred's blog has recently looked at labor force participation. But before we look at what Fred says, 
let's see why labor force participation is important. And let's back up a little bit more and talk about unemployment. First of all, unemployment is a simple concept. It's simply the number of people who don't have a job divided by the number of people in the labor force. Now the labor force includes those who are working and those who want to work. So if you're looking for a job, you're in the labor force. If you aren't working and you're not looking for work, you're not in the labor force. If you're retired, you're not in the labor force because you left when you went and retired. Many students are not in the labor force because when they're studying and in school, they have no time to work, so they aren't looking for work. If you're looking through the want ad searching for a job, you're in the labor force even if you don't have a job. But once you stop looking at those want ads and stop looking for work, you're not in the labor force. So it's really a pretty simple concept. Unemployment is simply the number of people who are not working who want to work divided by the entire labor force. Now, labor force participation is a big deal. It's a measure of employment opportunities. And if opportunities abound, the labor force will grow as people look for income earning opportunities. They decide they want to work instead of doing other things like going on vacation or playing Xbox. But as people give up on working, labor force participation drops. So now let's take a look at what Fred says. Fred, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, notes that while the rate of labor force participation decreased quickly during the previous recession and its recovery, the overall decline in labor force participation actually began way before that. And so Fred says, maybe it has very little to do with the economy and maybe it has more to do with demographics. Demographics is simply saying people are getting older and maybe they're not working. What they found is that the population aged 25 to 54 follows the same pattern as labor force participation. Their argument is, as the population is getting older, fewer people are working and fewer people are looking for work and therefore the labor force participation rate has dropped. Now if you stop right there you could say, well gee, the problem is solved. It's the boomers who are retiring and there's really nothing we can do about it. <laughs> but if you take a look at the data a little bit closer, you'll see that that does not explain the entire drop in labor force participation among those who are working age. See, what we have now is that some people who are old enough to work, not the people who are thinking about retirement, people who are actually old enough to work, age 25 to 54, their labor force participation rate has dropped. Let me say that again. The people who should be working, who are of an age that could be working, are not even looking for work, and that drop cannot be explained by demographics. In fact, the participation rate has dropped steadily since, steadily since 2000, since the, not the past recession, but the one before that. Now think about it this way. If the U.S. had the same labor force participation rate among 25 to 54-year-olds that it had at the beginning of 2000, there would be 3.4 million more people in the labor force. That's a huge number. Now, I live in the state of Oregon. It just so turns out that the population of Oregon is about 3.4 million. Can you imagine the entire population of Oregon not looking for work when they should be? That's what we have right now. And so what we have then for the bottom line is, is that aging boomers may explain some of the drop in the labor force participation, but the bigger problem is a working age population that is actually leaving the labor force altogether. Think of all the nicknames for the television 
And you realize that as a culture, we don't have a very high opinion of television. We call it the boob tube, the idiot box, the vast wasteland. Television has had a long and bad reputation for dulling the minds of young and old alike. Scientists, parents, and politicians have been debating the effects of television for more than half a century. Yet after 50 plus years of research, the science still is not settled. A recurring theme in our podcasts. But is some TV good for kids? And is some TV bad? Research recently published by the National Bureau of Economic Research calls the PBS television show Sesame Street, quote, one of the largest childhood interventions ever to take place, unquote. And this article has made a big splash. We're going to talk about it in a second here. The researchers claim that Sesame Street has had positive impacts on childhood development. The researchers call their results significant. They note that in areas with weak TV reception for Sesame Street, about 79.7% of children, roughly 80%, were at the grade level that was appropriate for their age. In other words, about 20% were at some different grade level, presumably below. They estimate that a move to a strong TV reception for PBS, the stations that display Sesame Street, would increase the percent of children at grade level that is appropriate for their age by about 2.9 percentage points to about 82.6%. Now, there's some problems with this study. First of all, it just looks at coverage of PBS in Sesame Street and doesn't necessarily measure whether anyone actually watches it once that coverage expands. What they do is they do a little test. They say, okay, now if you move from an area with weak reception for Sesame Street to an area with strong reception, you would see that 2.9 percentage point increase in the number of children who are performing at grade level. Now, you got to remember, a 30% percentage point increase is a move from having one of the weakest coverages of PBS to one of the strongest. A huge jump. So, it's a bit of a silly test. But if you think about it, you've got a huge jump in coverage, but really a tiny uh, increase in academic performance. And here's one of the things that's, I think, an important lesson on economic versus statistical significance. They say the results are statistically significant, and I won't doubt that. But if you dig down to see what the impacts are, you see that the impacts of Sesame Street or PBS coverage are actually pretty small, economically speaking, almost insignificant. Now, education researchers tend to have a tendency to spin their results to generate buzz. In other words, this wasn't written for people like me who have a PhD in economics. It was written for the press, and they love to blow up stories that make Sesame Street look good. Big Bird is a nice big bird, and he'll make you smarter. And we see how this, how this plays out. Go back a few years, and there was a very well-respected journal, Pediatric, published by the American Association of, of Pediatrics, they published a study claiming that watching only nine minutes, that's right, nine minutes, not even an entire episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, will turn preschoolers' brains into squishy goo. Now, these SpongeBob warriors had a group of about 64-year-olds who were randomly divided into one of three experimental groups. One group watched SpongeBob for nine minutes. Another one watched nine minutes of Caillou, which is a very slow-paced cartoon on PBS. And a third group sat drawing. Now, again, curiously, these researchers didn't allow the kids to watch the full episodes of the shows, so the kids really didn't know how the stories ended, which I think is kind of weird. After watching the shows, the kids were told to complete certain tasks. Three of these were designed to measure their brain function, such as attention, their memory, and problem solving. 
and one measured the kid's ability to delay gratification. The researchers claim that those that watched SpongeBob failed all the tests. But if you dig deeper, dig deeper at their data, you see that none of their results are statistically significant. They say they approach significance, which is very different. That just means that they wish it was a little that their numbers were a little bit bigger. And so that again is a lesson about economic and statistical significance and being very careful when you see research that's presented in the press because a lot of times the press is looking for a story and sometimes they're willing to accept the spin rather than the analysis. If you've been on the internet for more than a day or so, you've probably run into what's known as a troll. Trolls are people who post comments or make statements that really aren't designed to move the conversation any further. They're really designed to get someone's blood pressure up and get them to react and say something stupid in exchange. Well, it turns out trolling could actually have some beneficial impacts for the people who are doing the trolling. So there's good trolls and maybe there's bad trolls. Let's talk about some bad trolls first. There's a story about uh, Vladimir Putin's troll house, as it's called. It's a secretive group of dozens of online trolls based in Russia who propagate lies and information about the U.S., Ukraine, and other supposed enemies of Russia. For example, last September 11th, uh, the news broke on Twitter that there was a powerful chemical explosion uh, near Centerville, Louisiana, uh, at a place called Columbian Chemicals. There was another tweet that linked it to a screenshot, and it was supposed to show a story featured on CNN, and another pointed to a YouTube video of ISIS claiming responsibility. It took two hours for Colombian chemicals to catch up and put out the truth. There was no explosion, and the news was fabricated. It took months to figure out that the news came from Vladimir Putin's troll house. The trolls also take jabs at President Obama. They do uh, dirty jokes about him making uh, fun of his, uh, well, they make fun of him. On the one hand, if you put together Putin's troll house and you look at China's recent hacking of government servers, where the latest hack got personal information on 4 million federal workers, that's about one and a quarter percent of the entire U.S. population. It's pretty clear that there's a cyber war that's on. But on the other hand, Putin's trolls don't seem to have any real or lasting impact. Making a joke about President Obama's manhood and putting out a false story about a chemical explosion that can be quickly debunked doesn't really seem to do much. But maybe trolling works. When the Troll House story came out, I thought, gosh, I wonder if anyone could do that on a local level. And it so happened that literally the next day, there was a story that came out in the Sunday Oregonian newspaper. It published a letter from someone who claimed to visit the city after being gone for a while. And the letter hit on some major themes that had been frustrating and angering residents and visitors for years. Vagrancy, filth, crime, open drug use, and a deteriorating downtown. For example, in the letter they say, The next day we decided to bike the Springwater Corridor Trail. There were so many vagrants and frightening looking people in the bushes, I wished I had brought a gun to protect my family. We were even concerned about having our expensive bikes stolen when we took our water breaks. When we returned to our car near OMSI, which is the Museum of Science and Industry, there was a van next to it that looked like it had people living in it. They aggressively demanded money, standing between us and our car. Again, I wish I had had a weapon. It was signed by someone named Andre Marcel. Turns out, there is no Andre Marcel. The letter was a troll, but was effective. 
It was one of the most read and commented on letters on the Oregonian's website. And although there was no Andre Marcel, there were some truths in it. Clackamas County Sheriff's called the Springwater Corridor a super highway of crime. And there are problems in the city. And this troll highlighted those issues and put it in a letter that someone who wasn't a troll probably wouldn't have. In this case, it was effective because it touched a nerve, and a nerve that was already exposed. And while Andre Marcel is a false name, his letter spoke troubling truths that got a city thinking and talking. Thanks for listening to the Econ Minute Podcast, where we try to bring the real world to economics and some economics to the real world. I hope you enjoyed it. Please visit the Econ Minute blog at econminute.com. It has almost daily updates. You can contact me through the blog or just email info at econminute.com. Drop in next time for the latest Econ Minute podcast. Goodbye.